You're listening to Testimonies of Truth. So for this episode, we wanted to explore Christian persecution around the world. And if you're like me, you might have heard some things about how Christians are persecuted, but you haven't learned a lot about it. So to help us find out more about Christian persecution around the world, we spoke to two professionals for this episode. The first person we spoke to was Patrick, who is the International Director of Barnabas Fund, an aid agency for the persecuted church. The second person we spoke to was Tim Reed from Open Doors in Australia, which is an organisation that supports, helps and strengthens Christians living in persecution around the world. So let's start with our conversation with Patrick. At the beginning of our conversation, we asked Patrick how he initially came to faith. Patrick talked about his experience growing up in the UK in a Muslim family, but how he came to faith in Christ after spending time going to church, talking to the minister, recognising the love that he saw in Christians around him, reading the Bible, and spending time praying and asking God to reveal himself. Yes. I grew up in a Muslim background. My father had been a Hindu, but converted to Islam to marry my mother. And right about four and a half, we were packed off to the mosque. That was my brother and myself. And uh, I grew up in a Muslim environment, where in Islam. My father had been in political activities against the British in Diana. So, uh, he spent some time in prison, and my mother uh, really persuaded him to leave politics and go after his children, which uh, and unite. So we all came to the UK. He came first in 1959, and we followed six months later. I went to an ordinary school, a junior school, and was beaten up every day for both me. My brother and I were the only. The Asian school, and it was a pretty hostile environment. Secondary school was little better, and I grew up believing that all English people were Christians. Uh, they were brutal, they were cruel, they arrested my father, and on top of that, they were downright racist. So I had very little uh, to do with Christianity and little interest in it, except it was never. But uh, I used to play in sport, and my knees got taken away in a football match. So I was all strapped up, good friend with Sunday League. And one Sunday, a London City missionary got to my door and invited me to admission. Initially, I said, I don't think I want to go here, but I did go. And I sat in the back and heard the Christian gospel being preached for the first time in my life. I must say I was pretty antagonistic. I did not accept the Christian faith as being true or real. I believed it was a racist religion. I could not accept the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. I could not accept that he was there in God. And so at the end of the year, I had an argument with the minister and basically verified my music. I was surprised by his reaction. Instead of falling with me or arguing with me, he simply said, Why don't you come back? And for the next six months, I attended the religion. I did three things. 
Firstly, I observed the Christians' lives. I wanted to show them up as being a pack of hypocrites. That was my view of them, and I wanted that to be Instead, I was met with love, constant love, and I that I couldn't understand. The second thing I did was to read the Bible. They gave me a, a platinum copy of an authorized version of the Bible. I said, go away and read that. When I started to read it, but what do you do with the Leviticus? So I went back to them and I looked at the back of it and a tailor. So they stuck a little piece of paper in Matthew and said, go away and read it. So I began to read the New Testament, went back to the Old Testament, and then Isaiah, and Isaiah 53 was a crucial point for me because uh, I've always been concerned with suffering ever since I was a little boy. And for the first time, I could understand the nature of the suffering God. But the third thing I did was to pray. Every night, I would pray the same prayer. God, if you were really there, you would be in yourself me. At the end of six months, someone said to me, actually, why are you not in And I looked at them and said, that I am. So I don't know when I was saved. I don't know the processes of salvation. What I do know is that I was now upon the Lord of Jesus. So it's a, a very simple journey, a very difficult journey, uh, but one in which I believe the Lord let me to himself. We asked Patrick how Barnabas Fund initially started as an organisation and Patrick shared how Barnabas Fund was created when a group of people convened a conference in Cyprus to discuss the effects of Islam on Christians around the world. Everybody agreed that an organisation needed to be created that would provide support and assistance to the suffering church in the Muslim world. I came to realize that the suffering church in the Muslim world was on earth and literally on earth. But whereas many in the West were rightly concerned about the church in the communist world, but they had no knowledge of what was going on in the house of Islam. And whereas Christians have suffered under communism for 70 years, under Islam, it was more than 1,400 years. And so a group of us convened a conference in Cyprus, the home of Barnabas Fund, of Barnabas and Barnabas Fund. And we shared together our experiences of being living in the house of Islam. And there was a unanimous decision that we must create a new organization. So we created two. One was a research institute that would document the sufferings of the church in the Muslim world under Islam, and then secondly, an aid agency that would provide assistance to the church in the Muslim world. Now, we did that at a time when the mission agencies weren't interested and came out against us. The advocacy agencies were interested only in the communist world. The big denominations were concerned with uh, interfaith relations and biological relationships and governments in really energy and oil. So we had a pretty tough job, literally on our own, to address the suffering church 
in the house of Islam, to put that in the, on the map, to urge Christians to pray and then to give, and then to educate. That was in 1989, so it was a massive undertaking to engage in, because at that point, we had no one else. And uh, we had to take the lead in a, a movement, which thankfully is now a global movement, but at that point in time, it was a very lonely experience. Patrick also shared how Barnabas Fung is connected to his own experiences of persecution, such as being excluded from his family and his mother when he first became a Christian and decided to follow Jesus. In many senses, uh, the organization uh, encapsulates or incarnates my own early experiences of the Christian faith. I mentioned that uh, uh, the Lord moved into town, and I become a follower of Jesus. I remember going home and telling my mother that I become a follower of Jesus. Well, my mother literally uh, she broke down into this, and she gave me a choice. She said, "We now have a decision." Decided to continue to follow Jesus. You can no longer be my son, and you can no longer have this as your home. If you reject this Jesus, you remain my son, and you are part of this family. And I said to my mother, I cannot be back. I've taken a step. I uh, I decided to follow Jesus. Within a short space of time. I was a friend on the street of London. Homeless, a little springtime, uh, and definitely needing food and high fuel. I had to experience uh, that I went through to the degree that shaped my life. Because the little Christian community that was so wonderful in their love for me as a non Christian. Now it's not service. Whereas they would give me a meal if I wanted to stay in somebody's home, I was always welcome. Not a single person offered me bed for a meal. And so I lived as a trap. And I came to realize that my faith in Jesus or his love for me was the most special thing. But I could not depend on Christians. Because Christians would love me when I wasn't a Christian. But when I became a Christian, they simply weren't interested anymore. So during our conversation, Patrick also talked about some of the projects that Barnabas Fund has been involved in, like providing education to children building schools, building hospitals, restoring homes, rescuing Christian refugees from places like Syria and Iraq, and supporting hundreds of evangelists and church planters through leadership training. Yes, it's based upon our whole eight pastors. It's biblical. We, we base it on uh, the book of Galatians, uh, Chapter 6, of verse 10. 
and all rights. Do good for all, and we applaud all agencies that are concerned with the poor and engage in assisting them. But all rights, but especially for the household of faith, the second half of that verse. And that is where we come in. We believe that as Christians we have a special call to assist the body of Christ. And so we take Matthew 25 literally. When the Lord Jesus says, as you did hit one of the least of these heaven, we believe it will be blessing the Christian community. Uh, cover cover water uh, to visit those in prison, to provide food, to clothe the naked. All of these are meant to be the God to assist and support our Christian brethren. So when we were inside this, we took the name of Barnabas, because Barnabas had come from Cyprus, and Barnabas means very simply the son of encouragement. So the heart of Barnabas' father is to emulate the apostle Barnabas of old and uh, to be an encouragement to our brothers and sisters who are suffering, whatever it takes, whether it be by prayer, advocating their cause, providing humanitarian relief. So at this time, we educate more than 12,500 children, Christian children in Pakistan. We have built almost 150 schools, we actually are now supporting. In a place like Bangladesh, where many homes have been destroyed by Muslims, we are reconstructing homes in uh, the Santal community. Again, in Pakistan, we rescue uh, brick-kill workers, people who are virtual slaves. Australia has been very generous to us in giving visas. Our Operation Safe Havens, we have rescued more than two and a half thousand uh, Christian refugees from Iraq and Syria. We have others being brought to Europe. And our most latest venture is to rescue Eritreans. Christians in camps across in various parts of the world. We rescued nearly 9,000 Christians from the north of Sudan to be placed in the south. We build hospitals, we provide water. We also support more than 450 evangelists in church planters. We provide Bibles and leadership training. So we do a vast array of work and average year we fund about 450 projects in between 60 to 80 countries. When we spoke to Tim Reed from Open Doors Australia, we also asked him how Open Doors supports Christians living in persecution around the world. Tim talked about three main ways that they provide support. Open Doors provides support by distributing Bibles and theological books to the church worldwide by providing theological and leadership training to the church, and by providing practical support such as helping churches become sustainable through small business loans and training. So our goal is simply to help people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost. And so it, it depends on the region and the country, depending on you know what, what are the situations that are there. So people are persecuted in different ways, whether it be Islamic extremism, religious nationalism, 
organised corruption, a manner, a whole manner of different ways. And uh, what we do is we figure out from their situation and based on what they tell us, what are the ways that we can support them? It usually falls out in one of three ways. The first way is Bibles. Open Doors became famous originally because we smuggled Bibles into Eastern Europe. <laughs> now, there's not a lot of need to smuggle Bibles into Russia anymore. They're pretty easy to get. And in most regions around the world, it's not too hard to get Bibles. That said, we still do smuggle Bibles and other Christian literature like theology books where there is a need and you can't get them any other way. So Bibles is the first way. The second way is by training. So one of the major needs of the church around the world is training. Now, the training can differ. So in a place like Sudan, there's a lot of Christians. They have access to literature. But a lot of the people leading churches have been brought up in Christian families and are expected to lead the church because their parents were pastors. That's not necessarily the best qualification to make you a pastor. And so in that circumstance, we provide them training that's more theological and some stuff around leadership to make sure that there's a strong church. Another kind of training would be in a place like, say, Bangladesh, in Bangladesh, most people who become Christians come from an Islamic background. And when they become a Christian, they don't know how to have a Christian marriage. And so Christian marriage being quite different from other kinds of marriages, we provide marriage courses, and that means that they can be the greatest light in their community in that way. And so Bibles is one method, training is the next. And then the final method of ways that we help persecute believers is support. We provide physical support to Christians who are escaping violence. And we see a lot of that in our projects in Iraq, Syria, uh, Nigeria as well. Christians who have had to flee extremist groups usually uh, and can't get help another way or need some additional help. That also helps with our category of sustainable development for Christian communities. So we can do projects that uh, socioeconomic development such as small business loans and business training for people, which means that churches can become sustainable in their community as they have enough believers who have sustainable businesses and can support the church who then can support others. Because we just want to see the church be the church wherever it is, despite persecution. Okay, so now we know three main ways that persecuted Christians are receiving support around the world from Open Doors. But what kind of projects do Open Doors do to support those being persecuted? Well, Tim talks about one of the recent projects undertaken in Vietnam that involved creating children's Bible by local teams that could be distributed in different parts of the country. There's some projects that I get particularly excited about. So we have a project in Vietnam, which is a fantastic project. I got to visit it myself and meet some of the, par the partners who are on this project. Uh, in Vietnam, there's a children's Bible, which we've been helping distribute through one of our partners. And this children's Bible is quite unique and uh, really special. So this children's Bible is fully illustrated. Uh, it's beautiful in color. Kids absolutely love it. And the thing that makes it so special is that all of the illustrations all of the translation, all of the printing, everything that's gone into this Bible has been done totally 
by local teams. So those local teams have put in hours and hours of effort and are now distributing the Bible all over Vietnam. And it's so exciting to see. So that's one of my favorite projects to talk about, I think, and uh, something that I've been able to see firsthand. It's just incredible. So coming back to our conversation with Patrick from Barnabas Fund, one of the other things he talked about was some of the most challenging countries to live in in the world as Christians. He mentioned how challenging it is to live in Iraq or Syria as Christians because of the influence of Islamic State, in India because of the influence of the Hindi government, or places like Thailand and Sri Lanka because of the influence of Buddhism. The real difficulty in the church is facing is that we're living through a age of change, of major change in the political, economic, uh, in the military realms, uh, in, in the religious realms. And we have a rise of what I would term the new nationalisms. And the new nationalism is based on territoriality and land. So if you look at Islam more than any other religion, for now a number of years those three things have come together. And so Christianity is seen as a Western religion, either to be suppressed or removed. You could call it Islamic fundamentalism, call it what you will. With the rise of Islamic State in the Middle East, particularly Iraq and Syria, we saw the devastating consequences of such an ideology. The Christians massacred, uh, women and girls enslaved. It's been a horrific scenario. Devastating attacks on Christian communities in Mali, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Chad. And of course, many of uh, the these atrocities are committed by extremists coming out of the northeast of Nigeria, the Boko Haram, which has already massacred tens of thousands of Christians and has seen up to two million Christian refugees having to flee their homes. When we come to look at Hinduism, at India, we now have an Hindu government, and that Hindu government. How are Christians and other non-Hindus going to be treated? We have the anti-conversion laws. We have constant attacks on pastors, the burning of churches, and growing restrictions on the Christian community. Uh, Buddhism is following a very similar line with national Buddhism uh, developing rapidly in Sri Lanka, in places like Myanmar and uh, Thailand with exactly the same effects and impact on Christian communities, increasing attacks and marginalization. Then when we come to these secular ideologies, we are faced with uh, the issues about China and North Korea, where the Chinese government sees the underground church as a threat and is increasingly creating legislation rules which are applied on Christian communities, where we see now a new age of persecution. And from the West, uh, we have, of course, secular humanism, which mm. itself is making an impact on the fundamental rights and, uh, of, of Christians, and particularly in the field of education. On top of 
that you have the extreme governments of both Eritrea and North Korea, which is about the worst in the world. So I think we are living in a new age of persecution. So in connection with this, Tim from Open Doors talked about some other countries in the world where Christians are being persecuted, including North Korea, Afghanistan and Eritrea. Plus, Tim talked about what's called the world's watch list, which is a ranking from 1 to 50 of the most difficult countries to live in as Christians. resource that we produce every year called the World Watch List. Um, the long and short of it is, it's an indexed ranking of number one to 50 of the hardest countries to live in as a Christian. We do a lot of academic research and we look at far more than 50 countries alone, but this list is quite comprehensive. And if you just look at that list, then you get a really good idea of where persecution is in the world today. So. The number one country where it's hardest to live as a Christian is North Korea. And it has been for many, many years now. So North Korea is a country where Christians really don't have any kind of ability to meet together. We know that there's about 200,000 Christians in the country, but of that 200,000, about 70,000 of them are in labor camps where they experience horrific, horrendous conditions. Many of them will never get out of these labor camps. They will die in there. Um, that said, the church continues, and many people do come to Christ. But one North Korean believer told us that uh, anyone who becomes a Christian has the spirit of martyrdom in our country. It is, it is that difficult. Mm. The second hardest country is Afghanistan, and it's almost for the exact opposite region. We're, for, we're in North Korea the government controls absolutely everything, including the expression of religion and, and freedom of thought. In Afghanistan, the government can control almost nothing. And so because this Afghanistan is a really entrenched Islamic culture, uh, often with a lot of tribalism as well, where the tribe is more important than the nation, and so they have autonomy to do whatever they want, and that might mean if somebody converts to Christianity, the tribe will kill them. Even family members can go against a Christian and kill them in the street and face no repercussions. So very difficult to be a Christian in Afghanistan too. After that, there's Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Sudan, all very similar again with Islamic extremism being the main cause. Uh, governments are slightly more effective, but it's still so difficult to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, after that, Eritrea, which is a small country in Africa. I'm sure not many people have heard of Eritrea because I really hadn't heard of it before I started studying it when I came to Open Doors. And uh, it's probably best described as the North Korea of Africa, a very small country where the government is very controlling. And we see churches there shut down all the time. Iran, Yemen, Nigeria, all countries where it's very difficult to be a Christian. I guess the most surprising place that it's difficult to be a Christian would be the Maldives. Uh, the Maldives is, of course, a really popular honeymoon destination for many Australians. But in the Maldives, if you convert to Christianity, then you lose your citizenship. It's that difficult. 
Tim also mentions what he calls the scale of persecution, which shows the different types of persecution that takes place in different countries around the world. Tim says that on one end of the scale, there is really violent persecution, where Christians are losing their lives for their faith. The middle of the scale is where Christians lose their jobs because of their faith, or they are excluded from social activities such as at school. And at the other end of the scale, society may allow them to be Christian, but they are teased and their opinions are marginalised. Persecution is tricky, and it never looks the same. So in 2 Timothy uh, 3, there's a good passage that says, all who would seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted for their faith. Now, for us here in Australia, we also seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. So where is the persecution? Uh, the way that persecution works is never the same. And so I like to think of persecution, and I encourage others to think of persecution, like being along a scale, a straight line scale. At one end of the scale, you've got really violent persecution. And the kind of persecution where, unfortunately, people are losing their lives as a result of becoming Christian. And we see that in a few countries in the world today, but by and large, it's fairly contained. Uh, violence isn't always the only kind of persecution. And so with that at one end of the scale, if you move down the scale and you get towards the middle, well, in that middle section, you've got a far more insidious kind of persecution. And in this kind of persecution in the middle of the scale, we call it living a civil death. And it's so hard. So what happens is Christians are fired from their jobs for being Christian, and they can't find a new one. Uh, Christians are totally unemployable, and they're thought of as second-class citizens. And this becomes a problem, particularly for parents, because parents have to watch on as their children are excluded from being able to play with other kids. Uh, when it comes to school sports, they'll never get picked. When it comes to uh, being educated, the kids will be told to sit at the back of the class so they can't concentrate and they don't get the content. Often in these countries where this is kind of a problem, we see Christians have to take a Quranic text, uh, test in order to go to university. And so that's incredibly hard. And so for parents in this middle section, it's really hard to be a Christian, and, and that's the form of persecution in the middle. At the end of the scale, I think the part that kind of encapsulates us a bit is a sort of persecution where society says, you can be a Christian, but you need to keep it to yourself. Your ideas are out of date, and they don't really make sense for our society anymore. Mm. And so the result of that is that we find that Christians in this context are teased, and their opinions are, are marginalized to some extent. Now, it may not look as bad as at the other end of the spectrum, but everything along this line, everything along this scale, we would say that is persecution. Tim goes on to talk about some of the challenges that Christians face, particularly in Islamic countries, such as the effects on Christian women, people who have converted from Islam to Christianity, and some of the challenges receiving education as Christians. I guess I, I was having a conversation with my wife last night, and she was very surprised to hear uh, 
that this was a particular concern and challenge for believers in persecution. So one of the really hard things that we see is um, Christians who are in persecution are often quite vulnerable and there's not a lot of protections for them. And, and that means that there may be legal help at their disposal or there may be laws that protect them, but in reality, the police don't do a lot. And so in a lot of, particularly Islamic countries, we see that Christian women who experience kind of a double persecution because uh, they experience some kind of marginalization simply for being female and then they're persecuted because they're Christian, so a kind of double persecution almost. Uh, we see a lot of women who are forcibly married to Muslim men. And, and that's very, very common. It's not as though that's from isolated incidences. We see a lot of Christians who have converted from Islam. Uh, their families will basically put them under home arrest. They may not always kill them, but they won't ever let them leave the home. And they'll make their existence in the home almost unbearable in the hopes that they will convert back to Christianity. Now, a lot of this stems from an honor-shame culture set up. And that means that when somebody converts from Islam to Christianity, not in every country, but in a lot of countries, it brings shame to the family. And so it's important for that family to rid the family of this shame. Now, an extreme way of doing that is by killing the Christian in their family to show that the family does not align with them. But in other ways, if they can get that family member to convert back to Islam, that's another way of removing the shame. And so that's, those are some big challenges that we see Christians facing. Uh, losing their jobs as well, that's, that's incredibly difficult because how do you support and, and uh, give your family what they require to survive if you can't have a job? Uh, another way that Christians face persecution or, or some challenge, another challenge that Christians face uh, is the education challenge. If you can't go to university and get a degree because you have to do some form of Quranic studies but you can't pass that or you don't want to study the Quran, well then how are you going to be upwardly mobile and, and get a job in an influential position? It, it's very difficult. Coming back to our conversation with Patrick from Barnabasfond, one of the other things he talked about was what we can learn from Christians who are being persecuted. In particular, he talks about the value of suffering and why it is so important for Christians to defend God's truth no matter what the cost. I have a Australia and New Zealand. My wife is a New Zealander and I have a citizenship with New Zealand and we come often to Australia and New Zealand. It's a welcoming uh, place. Christians are lovely, they're very generous. But the issue I think Australia needs to grapple with is that of suffering. What Christians learn from the suffering church that is deepen her faith, draw her closer for her Lord. I would say that the church in Australia desperately need that reality of faith which comes out of suffering. Now, she may not have to suffer the same degree in this, this to suffer in other very difficult situations, but she could begin to learn and empathize 
So I would say that is the place. Now being separate is that this is Christians that have to stand up for their faith and be willing to embrace uh, suffering because of Jesus. Here in the UK, a secular government is making it all very, very difficult for Christians to live according to the gospel and to bring up our children according to the word of God. And I think the same is happening in Australia. Mm. And we need to if need be, to go to prison uh, for the sake of the gospel. We have a new law which says that next year all children will have to go through a sex education syllabus from the age of six. And we are saying, hang on, we want parental choice. And these are issues which affect all of us now. Separate humanism as an ideology, which is determined to crush Christianity. And so we could learn from Christians in China, India, Pakistan, Nigeria, to stand for truth, whatever the cost. Mm. So I think the second, this is second major area, is to empathize, to realize that we are a Christian community. We have one womb which has brought us into being, and that is the womb of Jesus. Brothers means to be born from the same womb, that same identity. Whatever our background, our culture, our nationality, what unites us is the blood of Jesus and the faith in Jesus that we have. We are brothers and sisters. And as Paul writes, if one part of the body uh, hurts, the whole body hurts. So we have to feel the pain. We have to weep. And without that, nothing else really is worth it. And once we feel that pain, then we can pray, we can advocate, and then if the Lord uh, allows us to and we have the resources, we can give. But without that emotional uh, involvement, if Christians in Australia, and I know many who feel that pain, then I think it draws us closer to our brothers and sisters and to being the body of Jesus Christ here on earth that is being broken afresh and whose blood is being shed afresh. Many Christians do not understand what suffering means. In a strange way, our faith is based on one who suffered for us, who died the most ignominious of deaths, painful of deaths, hanging there on a cross, and that defines us. Our Christian lives cannot be lived outside of that Jesus and his pain and suffering. Mm. And we go through our Holy Communion, whatever our religious tradition. We take the bread, we drink the wine, and we walk out. Where is the pain? Where is the suffering? Where is that identification with suffering? And so, don't talk to me about suffering, talk to me about hope. I want blessing. I want to see what God is doing. I don't want to know about suffering. And so we have no theology of suffering. We have no experience of suffering. Peter, Paul, and Peter writes in one thing about the uh, manifold nature of suffering. We all know those things. We know hard work, broken relationships, uh, in need of money, family going wrong. We all know pain in some way, but we try to shut that pain out 
and we want the ideal of a life based on pleasure with the secular humanist universe behind us. But if we could learn to embrace pain and suffering from the earliest and see it as a part of our lives, then the critique of human race will become a part of us. Right now, I think for many Christians, that if we don't want to the extent of suffering is so great. They say, I can't bear it. Please don't tell me about it. Give me good news. At the end of our conversation with Patrick, we asked Patrick what he thinks gives Christians who are being persecuted a sense of hope and what encourages them to hold on to their faith and to keep going in the Christian journey. Patrick talked about how our hope derives from God in Jesus Christ. I think ultimately hope lies in God. There is no other place for any Christian to go, my own experience of uh, having to lose family and knowing that all we have is Jesus. To those who have experienced far, far worse than I could ever have experienced, it's almost the same. Our hope lies in God, in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that this life is not the end, that we have heavenly things, but there is another life. I think of Cassia Bibi, and when she was first arrested in trial, one was hundreds there. Here is a story of true faith in Jesus Christ. She could have repented her faith, she could have taken another way out. She was willing to sacrifice husband and children, and even in her very life itself, because of that faith in Jesus Christ. But for Christians who are caught in that situation, that is not what they ask. They want to know the presence of the Lord. And uh, the love that we is with them, uh, all of us, we say, without hope I won't survive. Actually, that isn't true. Uh, it isn't hope that makes us survive. It is the reality of the presence of the Lord with us. Mm. And that is hope. It is an eschatological hope. It is a hope that Jesus is going to come again, or mm. if now we get It's not a hope that I'm going to have a better life, mm. or the sufferings of the way. Mm. In many sense, it doesn't go away, and it can lead to death. The hope is on a, on a person with Jesus. Mm. A hope that binds us to our Lord. Mm. That is what that hope is. So we also asked him from Open Doors the same question, and he said that Christians who experience persecution have the same hope that you and I have, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I, I think they have the same hope that we have. You know, every, one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, we know that from Philippians, uh, chapter 2, I believe. Chapter 2? Yeah, it sounds about right. Um, in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know that that's coming. Uh, we know that Christ hears the cries of the oppressed. In the Beatitudes in Matthew, it specifically says, blessed are the persecuted. We, we know 
that there is comfort in the scriptures for those who face persecutions. Uh, all those who would seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, as I said before, will be persecuted. It's, it's a good sign sometimes that persecution is happening. Persecution is not outside of God's plan, but it's a big part of God's plan. And it's not necessarily that God wants to see his people persecuted, mm. but we often see that things come out of persecution that wouldn't otherwise happen. So if you think about Acts chapter 8, uh, in Acts chapter 8, there's a big fallout that's just occurred because uh, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, has been killed for his faith in Acts chapter 7. And it seems like things are totally dire. But then if you look in Acts chapter 8 at verse 4, it says those who have been scattered, and that's as a result of Stephen being killed for his faith, a great persecution breaks out against the church. And Saul, who is this kind of ancient terrorist at the time, is going from house to house looking for Christians to drag off, beat up and put in prison. As a result of this persecution, the church is scattered. But in verse 4 it says those had been scattered preach the word wherever they went mm, to point the, that um you know the christians were were scattered because of persecution but at the same time they had the opportunity to um take god's word wherever they went it's it's exciting to think about and i think in particularly western christianity it's something we've somewhat overlooked and and we think a lot about human rights and what is our rights and whatnot and it, it is great to have rights but when the scriptures are written Human rights were not a thing, <laughs> and it's only from Western tradition, heavily influenced by Christian Judeo values, that we actually see the birth of those things. And mm. uh, persecution is totally normal. There are 245 million Christians who face high levels of persecution today. There are even more Christians who are facing persecution. We believe it's about 70% of the church around the world is persecuted uh, to some you know, difficult extent. To see the church persecuted, God has a plan through all of this. And there is a greater hope of when we go home. And I think as well, in uh, 1 Peter 1, it talks about an inexpressible and glorious joy despite present sufferings. Mm. And so it's through these things that God shows himself and, and there is a plan in action. Finally, we asked him what we can do in Australia to support and assist those who are experiencing persecution around the world. Tim talks about two ways that we can support Christians who are being persecuted. The first way is by providing financial support if we can, and the second way is by praying for the persecuted church. As believers in Australia, we have an opportunity to be the fat in the body of Christ. Now, that sounds bad, I understand, but as the fat, we have a really important function in the body. The fat is where all of the excess energy is stored. And in Australia, we have a lot of resources. We, we have a lot of this fat, but fat on the body is only good so long as it's used up. And so what we can do is we can give financially towards these believers because as i said before open doors mission is to help people follow jesus all over the world no matter the cost now some of our resources can go towards doing that and i would encourage people if you're not giving in some way to the persecuted church you should because we want to see the persecuted church supported so that the church can be the church all over the world no matter how hard it is 
if you value the way that your church does ministry in your local community, trust me, so do Christians in areas where it's difficult to be a Christian. And so we want to ask you to give into that. The other thing that we can do, being part of one body with many parts, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12, is we can be praying for the parts of the body that are suffering. If you have a rock in your shoe, you know straight away because it sends a shocking pain all the way up your leg straight into your mind and you know that you're in pain. At the moment, the body of Christ around the world has a rock in its shoe and in many regards, we're not doing anything about it. So many of our brothers and sisters around the world are persecuted for their faith and we don't think a lot about it, but we should. We should be praying for them. And we've got to pray not that God would take away the persecution because, as I said before, persecution is often a big part of God's plan. We need to be praying that they would remain strong under this persecution. We need to be praying that God would continue to lift them up in this time. And we've got to be praying, most importantly, that the gospel would continue to go out no matter Mm. the circumstances because it is only by Jesus Christ that we are saved. And he came for everyone. Even the people that fear him now can become the greatest supporters. And Saul, who I spoke about not too long ago in Acts chapter 7, killed Stitch, drives the church to start fulfilling the Great Commission for the first time. Now, he was a massive persecutor, very similar in a lot of ways to a modern-day terrorist, finding Christians to put in prison, to beat up, and to oversee their deaths. But then Christ met him on the road to Damascus. Christ appeared to him in a vision. Now, I believe that Jesus, when that happened, as the risen Lord seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, I believe that Jesus is still exactly in the same position now as he was then. And so what is to stop him from appearing to terrorists now? and appearing to those who are persecuting the church now. Mm. Nothing. And so we got to pray that Christ would reveal himself to those who are persecuting us. Because those people may go on to have a huge influence on the church, just as Saul, who became Paul, did. That brings us to an end of this episode. Thanks to Patrick, the National Director of Barnabas Fund, and Tim Reed from Open Doors Australia for joining us on the show. And thanks to Nathan, the co-producer of the podcast, who helped out with this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Testimonies of Truth, you can check us out on Facebook. And to listen to more episodes, our website is testimonieswebsite.podbean.com.